Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I got to call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, directed, in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. Greetings, my good people. What is happening? What is going on? What is the latest and greatest? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic. The holiday week is upon us, and I got lots cooking in the sports kitchen, so I'll be able to serve up all the fixings and trimmings. Here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast, this is your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 165 episodes, I welcome you guys back. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, even Amazon Music. Or you can go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about the pod, about me, archive shows, etc., it's a Monday, November the 23rd, in the year of our Lord, 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What's to expect here on this podcast? This is as follows. The NBA had a wild and crazy first couple of days of free agency. Remember, there was also the draft last Wednesday. We'll combine all that in the pot for you. And I'll be able to spoon feed that to you later on with all the big signings, whether your name is Donovan Mitchell, Jason Tatum, even Gordon Hayward, who goes from Boston to Charlotte. So you know, I have some comments about that. Where the NHL looks like there may be an impasse between the players and owners. They collectively bargained an agreement back in July, but the owners seem to have second thoughts. What does that mean for the players and a potential January 1st start of their season? You'll get that later on, as well as everything happening in college football with the big game between Ohio State and Indiana. Not as close as the final score indicated, but an entertaining game nevertheless. So we'll go through the whole college football landscape. And finally... With Major League Baseball looking ahead at their own free agency, why this could be a cold, long, hard winter for players such as George Springer, Trevor Bauer, Marcelo Zuna, JT Real Muto, just to name a few, and how baseball is heading into an Armageddon next year, and that could impact this year's free agency. So that will be later on, as well as my Hero and Zero of the Week. But the opening theme here is twofold when it comes to the NFL. The NFC Least... I know the Roger Goodells and the powers that be in the NFL, they cannot be happy by what they see there happening between a division that is separated by technically a half a game, but where no team has more than three wins. And here we are ready to close week 11 and into a Thanksgiving where no one in their right frame of mind two weeks ago would have thought that the Washington football team going up against the Dallas Cowboys and that 415 time slot this coming Thursday would not only be for first place, but the winner of that game will come out with just four victories to boot. I don't know if you want to look at that as a disgrace. I don't know if you want to look at it as, well, it's just tough luck. That's how the division has shaked down this year. But as I said, if you're the hierarchy in the NFL, you cannot be happy with what has taken place here. And you just chalk it up to bad luck. We know about the injuries to Dak Prescott and everything that the Cowboys have had to endure here this 2020 season. 
the Washingtonians and what they've had to do with their quarterback carousel, whether your name is Dwayne Haskins, Kyle Allen, now Alex Smith, who got his first victory in over two years. So congratulations to him. The Giants, who had a bye yesterday, but here they are looking to see if they could throw their hat in the ring to probably win a division. And then they're the Philadelphia Eagles. And the Eagles, by all chances, they should win this division blindfolded. But for whatever reason, they cannot get out of their own way. And thankfully for that tie against the Cincinnati Bengals earlier this year, because that's probably what could win them the division in the long run. Because having that tie is almost like a win. As long as the other three teams in the division don't happen to have one more victory than they do. So let's just say for argument's sake, if at the end of the year, all four teams end up with six wins. And chances are it's not going to be the case because they still have to play within one another in the division. Obviously, we talked about the game on Thanksgiving between Washington and Dallas. But Dallas still has to play Philly again. Philly has to play Washington at the end of the year. Dallas comes to the Meadowlands to play the Giants in the final game of the season. So there are going to be some games where you would think there may be some separation as we get toward the end of the season. But if all teams end up with six wins... Philly will end up winning the division because they'll have a record of 6-9-1 and one where everybody else will be 6-10. and 10. So even though that tie looks ugly in the win-loss and tie column, but at the end of the day, they'll still go on as division winners and host a playoff game come January. And if you're an NFL fan, I'm intrigued by what's going on. I know that this is something not to really root for, or something that you actually can't avert your eyes because when you look at how this division is shaping up, you say to yourself, how is this humanly possible? When you look back, what was it, eight, nine years ago when the Seattle Seahawks won their division at 7-9 and nine and actually beat the Saints in a playoff game, the famous Marshawn Lynch rumble 64-yard touchdown where he dove backwards into the end zone. And then a couple years after that where the Carolina Panthers won a division at 7-8-1. But here you are with technically six games to go and you may have a division winner that could have double-digit losses at the end of the day, which would be obviously historic. And it's something that I'm not rooting for, but would I like to see in my lifetime? Why not? And I know that brings up a lot of disdain with the purists, with the traditionalists in the sport that are going to look at other teams that will have a better record than anybody in the NFC East and not make the postseason where they're going to want to reinvent the wheel to say, okay, well, even if they do win a division at 4-12, and we should have other teams with better records represent the conference other than their division winners. Unfortunately, this is how it is, people. There's no way you could try to mask it. There's no way you could try to correct it, rearrange whatever word you want to use. It's not going to happen. So even if the... Eagles at 6-9-1 and one, or the Cowboys, Giants, and Washingtonians end up at 6-10 and 10 winning a division and host a home game in the process. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. There is nothing you can do about it. So if that means if the Rams win a division and Seattle has to go cross-country to play in Philadelphia, in Washington, at Dallas, or at New York, and their record could be 11-5 or 12-4, and four, well, too bad. So I am one that no matter what the NFL may think right now, and I know they're not worrying about that. They're just trying to get through the season with COVID. So whatever they have on their plate after the season and they look at this division 
with six wins or obviously they're going to be under 500 and try to do whatever it takes to not give them a home playoff game or not have them get the benefits of winning a division with a losing record. There's no way to revise that, fix it. I don't care what the NFL tries to do here. Yes, is it a bad look at the end of the day? Yeah, it doesn't look great. But at the same time, if Dak Prescott wasn't hurt, chances are they may be leading the division right now. And if Philadelphia, for all their warts and bumps, they can't seem to get themselves untracked. Are they a better football team than what they've exhibited? I think so, but their record is what their record is. And I get that the Washingtonians and the Giants, nobody expected them to be anywhere near this NFC least mix. But you're just going to have to grin and bear it, people. This is what it's going to be like for the next six weeks. And maybe it'll be justified if they do come out of the wild card round with a win. But we still have plenty of time to sort it all out. And for those who have that bad taste in their mouth, wondering why that this NFC least team, whomever it is, that's going to win this division is going to host a playoff game. You're just going to have to suck it up, grin and bear it. And then my other theme is how... The AFC and NFC, last week I talked about teams coming back to the pack and teams rising up a little bit. And it looks like in the AFC, you have your two top heavy teams at Pittsburgh and Kansas City. And then you have everybody jumbled in the mix there in the middle. Even Buffalo is leading the division right now and Miami had a great chance to tie them yesterday and they weren't able to do so in Denver. But whether your team that you root for is in Las Vegas, is in Cleveland, is in Baltimore... Tennessee, Indianapolis, that is going to be a fight to the finish. And right now, Baltimore is on the outside looking in, which we'll get to a little bit later on. And the same for the NFC. When you look at what's happening in that conference, we know about the Saints right now. They have the top seed where going into the weekend, it was the Green Bay Packers. But with the Packers losing to Indianapolis yesterday, they still have a stranglehold on the NFC North. But again, you have all those teams that are in the mix there. Whether you're the Rams, who have a huge game against Tampa tonight. Or even the Buccaneers. Also looking at the Arizona Cardinals, who had a tough loss there on Thursday night to the Seattle Seahawks. And of course, you can't forget the aforementioned Seahawks. So, even though the AFC, a lot of that is in the middle when it comes to all those teams that I mentioned. And here, with the NFC, a lot of it is more up at the top. Because we all know that one team's going to come out of the NFC least. And it looks like right now, one team's going to come out of the NFC North. Because I do not trust the Bears. I have no belief in them. And you look at the stinker that they put up last Monday night against the Vikings. And then the Vikings stubbed their toe yesterday, which we'll get to. But you're not going to see a lot of jockeying for position in the NFC as far as the wildcard teams are concerned in comparison to the AFC. And that's what we got here as we close out Week 11 tonight. Rams in Tampa to play the Buccaneers. A game that Tampa in primetime, they're 1-2 this year. I know the one victory was not one to remember. That was the Monday night game against the Giants. But the other two games, them losing a couple of weeks back, pretty much being embarrassed by the New Orleans Saints. And then a Thursday night in Chicago where Tom Brady didn't know how many downs it was on the final drive for the Buccaneers. So now as we take a look at the winners and losers for a week number 11, my first winner, I'm going to say the Dallas Cowboys. We know what this team has gone through so far this year with the quarterback aside, 
But with Mike McCarthy, a lot of people called for his head halfway through the season. And this is his first year as head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. But now that he gets Andy Dalton back, and Dalton had a very effective game yesterday against the Vikings. They had a huge fourth down, fourth and sixth late in the game, converted there between Andy Dalton and Amari Cooper, which led to the game-winning field goal. And the Cowboys, you wonder, with Dalton now under center and maybe getting a little gas in their tank, with the Washingtonians coming into their building and looking to exact revenge. Because if you remember, Dalton was knocked out of that game by a vicious hit from the Washingtonian linebacker John Bostic to where he was concussed, didn't play for a few weeks, and now that he has his sea legs and the Cowboys are looking to take the division because it is hot potato right now, as we talked about a second ago. You wonder if this is going to be what jumpstarts the Cowboys to propel them to win a division. My second winner, I'm going to say the Seahawks. I know it was a few days ago. I get that it's in our rearview mirror, so it doesn't really have the immediacy, unlike the games that we just witnessed yesterday. But they had come off of losing two in a row. They were reeling. They needed to win that game in the worst way, considering they lost to Arizona a few weeks prior to in the desert. And now that it looks like they got their footing on a division where they're hoping for the Rams to lose tonight. Because remember, the Rams beat the Seahawks the week before. If the Rams win tonight, they'll be in first place, tied with the Seahawks, but they had the tiebreaker. And if they would have lost that game, who knows where their season would have went. Although their schedule upcoming is easy, but anytime you're a game behind in the division, especially with that loss to Arizona, winning that game the way they did the other night was enormous. So the Seahawks get my second win of the week. Now to the losers, I know Vegas has had some good moments this year. And yesterday looked like it was going to be another one where they got the go-ahead touchdown with a minute and 43 to go. The pass there from Derek Carr to Jason Witten. And a lot of people are going to say they needed to burn more time on the clock. You can't give the ball back to Patrick Mahomes with a three-point lead, four-point lead, seven-point, whatever it is. We know last night it was three points. But what could they do? They were on the doorstep. They had a huge pass interference call which set them up there at first and goal. They did what they had to do. They had to punch the ball in the end zone. And the question is, could their defense make a stop? Obviously, they were unable to do so. Highlighted by the touchdown throw from Patrick Mahomes to Travis Kelsey. Back of the end zone, which was a terrible play by Jonathan Abram, the safety, who went up on the play where he knows he should have went back. Kelsey's a guy. And I get that you have Tyree Kill and a bunch of other offensive threats there out in the field. But you can't leave number 87 open. He missed that assignment badly. And he was wide open to get that touchdown catch. So if you're a Vegas Raider fan today... You got to be sick to your stomach knowing that you missed a golden opportunity to not only beat the Chiefs again, but to sweep them and be a game behind them in first place that no matter how the schedule unfolds, if you end up tied with them at the top of the AFC West, you win the division. And right now you could pretty much kiss the division goodbye for the Raiders, although they're still in the AFC wildcard mix, but that was just a tough loss and they're losing number one. My second loser, I have to say the New England Patriots. For them to put up two wins the way they did, granted, they weren't pretty, beating the Jets on a Monday night, and then in a monsoon versus the Ravens last week. To have that stinker against a 2-7 and team, I understand it was on the road, and it was against a team in the Texans that were fighting for any type of respectability, but they did not show up in the game. I know that score, 27-20, looks pretty close 
at the end of the day, but Houston took over that game and were in control pretty much from start to finish. And if you're Bill Belichick this morning, you got to be thinking to yourself, that's going to be the one game that's going to keep you up all winter long for them not to get their record to 5-5, five and five, for them not to be a part of the AFC wildcard chase. And that's just a bad loss if you're New England. And we understand. Talent aside, and Cam Newton actually had a good game. But we know that they've been struggling offensively. They don't have the weapons that they once had. But still, that was a bad loss. And it looked like they just were not focused from start to finish, especially on the defensive end. So they get loser number two. And the third loser, and I hate to kind of mirror this to the one winner that I had this week. But if you're a Viking fan, to my guy's head style and Kev the Viking fan, you also have to wake up this morning sick to your stomach because after going 1-5 and five and winning three straight games all in the division, winning in Green Bay, at home against Detroit, and then the Monday night game in Chicago, you felt good going into that game yesterday knowing that the Cowboys, although for everything that I mentioned about them, that's a game that you could circle and say, we should win this game, and they let that one slip away. And that's going to be one, again, whether it's Mike Zimmer, just like I said about Bill Belichick, it's going to keep you up all winter long knowing that game was in your building. I understand no fans, but you're going to look back at that and kick yourself in the rear end wondering that if we would have won that game, got us to 500, the NFC mix still wide open as far as wild card is concerned, and they pretty much squandered a huge opportunity for them to get themselves back into contention there as far as one of the top seven seeds in the NFC. Now let's zip through the league yesterday. Trim some fat. Detroit and Carolina, does anybody care? Carolina won 20 to nothing. Kudos to PJ Walker. He was an XFL player who was signed by Matt Rule. Of course, they had a connection going way back. He wasn't really impressive. He did throw for 258 yards, but had a bad interception in the end zone. But Detroit is inept. What could you say? They're going to have to blow it up. And Matt Patricia is going to be out in the street by the end of the year. So Carolina wins in a shutout, 20 to nothing. Some controversy in New Orleans as to whether who should start at quarterback. Jameis Winston, the guys we all know, number one pick overall many years ago. First year in New Orleans. Taysom Hill, the guy who is the multi-purpose, their version of, you want to say, Lamar Jackson. Not to compare him to the MVP, but in a sense where he's able to play that RPO very well. He runs, he throws, he even catches the ball at times. And... Taysom Hill did the job, was able to propel them to a 24-9 victory. Again, it was the Atlanta Falcons, so you can't go crazy. From some of the highlights that I saw of Hill, he underthrew a ball badly to Emmanuel Sanders. It was completed, although he does have a strong arm. On that play, you didn't really see it. And Hill's a guy that can make plays, is a threat, and you only hope as a stopgap will be able to do the job between now and when Drew Brees comes back from his rib injury. But a lot of people thought that maybe Jameis Winston should start considering his pedigree and what he's done in the league. Granted, he hasn't done much, but certainly he's done a lot more than Taysom Hill. But at least for one day, Hill did the job against an inept and inferior Falcon team. So they stay atop the NFC there with an 8-2 record. Justin Herbert continues to shine. 366 yards for him as they beat the Jets 0-10. Will they win a game this year? Let's get to week 12 before we could see them going 0-16. There's still plenty of football to be played. Chances are they're going to trend in that direction where they could go 0-16. And even based on some of the things I've read, we understand Chris Johnson, Woody Johnson, they're not going to say anything about the coach right now. And they're going to wait to the end of the season. 
But you have to think that Gaze cannot come back. And I don't want to hear that the team has been awful, they don't have a lot of talent, so on and so forth. Understood. But can you win one game? One game. Even Jacksonville, who's lost now nine in a row, they won their first game of the year. And the only reason why I know is because I picked Indianapolis as my team for the knockout pool, and I got knocked out week one by Gardner Minshew and company. So if Jacksonville can win one game, and to me, I look at them as probably being the worst in the sport, but the Jets, either they're neck and neck, an inch behind or maybe even an inch above, even though they don't have a victory under their belt, but come on. But Herbert continues to shine, and he's going to end up being the rookie of the year, sadly, because of what happened in Washington yesterday with Joe Burrow being carted off, which looks like an ACL injury, and he even tweeted, see you next year. So very sad to see the number one overall pick not only go down, but you're not going to see him back for the rest of this year. Chances are, who knows, they're going to win another game. They're probably going to go 2-13-1. But you all know that they're not going to be in the Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes. But Washington, as I mentioned earlier, of course, with their win, just a half game back, the top spot of the NFC least. Is Cleveland the most unimpressive 7-3 and team they've ever seen in your life? Well, right now, they're currently in second place in the AFC North because of their win against the Eagles yesterday. And we talked about the Eagles a little bit there earlier. But I'm going to make this about the Browns right now. They are so underwhelming. Now, granted, they have a very good ground game highlighted by the dynamic duo of Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb. And we can't negate that. And that's what's going to help them win games, not only down the stretch, but if they do happen to make a run in January. Because they could move the chains. They can kill the clock. Baker Mayfield has done nothing this year as far as stats. And we all know there's a passing league. And granted that their offense is built a lot differently than pretty much 75 to 80% of the teams in the league as it is right now. But you have to get something out of your quarterback at some point. And we have not seen much when it comes from Baker Mayfield. But the Browns, they keep winning these games and they keep moving along. So kudos to them. Kevin Stavansky, the rookie coach there, formerly of the Minnesota Vikings, the offensive coordinator. So as long as you keep winning, it doesn't matter who's in front of you. You don't throw W's in the garbage, as we say time and time again. So Cleveland there moves up in the standings where the Ravens now take a step back after a brutal loss at home. It's interesting about this team, the Ravens that is, because whenever they get a lead at the half, they're unbeatable. And you've seen that pretty much for the first year and a half of Lamar Jackson's tenure as quarterback of the Ravens. But when you look at these last few weeks, whether it was a game against Pittsburgh when you had a 17-7 lead at half and you end up losing that game. And then yesterday you had a 13-10 lead, I believe they had at the half. And they actually took a 21-13 lead at one point before squandering it. And then the Titans came back where Ryan Tannehill had a pedestrian start but had a strong finish to his game Derrick Henry punctuates it with the overtime winner the touchdown there to make it 30 to 24 and I understand Tennessee could be a big winner this week when it goes to the winners and losers but Tennessee and Baltimore they're mirror images of one another as far as the way they construct their football teams run heavy rely on their defense although both of their defenses are not great but they do play physical they do play tough And the Titans were at the beginning of the game, speaking of tough, were stomping all over the Raven logo at midfield to where John Harbaugh came out, had some words with Malcolm Butler. So at the end of the game, where Mike Vrabel went to shake John Harbaugh's hand and Harbaugh dismissed him, he just waved him off and then tried to downplay it in the postgame. 
John Harbaugh, stop being a sore loser. I'm just tired. I'm so sick of the Ravens. And Thursday night is going to be, hopefully, the Steelers will stop on their season and put them to rest. But that's going to be a competitive game. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the Ravens were unable to get a huge victory. And now their season is slipping right through the cracks as they are now 6-4, and four, third place in the AFC North behind the Cleveland Browns. I mean, who would have thought? Now, Cleveland needs to beat a big team, as we know, but here they are, second place and uh, trending north in the AFC, no pun intended. Miami had a chance to get to 7-3 and three to tie the Buffalo Bills, as I mentioned earlier, but they weren't able to do that in Denver. Coach Brian Flores even pulled out Tua to bring in Ryan Fitzpatrick, and I know Fitzpatrick had some good numbers, but he did throw a huge interception there. And he did say that Tua was going to be a starter. He felt that his offense needed to change the pace. Tua in the postgame was very diplomatic, saying that whatever it takes to put out the best effort to win the game, and if it wasn't because of based on my productivity, if Ryan had to come in there and do the job, he was fine with that. And kudos to the kid for acknowledging and understanding that Coach Flores didn't pull him out to try to knock him or his confidence as a player. But that's a tough loss. And we get Mile High and Tagovailoa, who hasn't been overly impressive, but has been able to do the job so far, wasn't able to do so in Denver yesterday as the Broncos eke out a 20-13 victory. The Colts and Packers had a very entertaining 4 o'clock game yesterday where the Packers had a big lead there in the first half, actually led by 14, heading into the third quarter, 28-14, but they were unable to score another point until the final seconds of the fourth quarter where they tied the game with a Mason Crosby field goal but as you get into overtime Green Bay gets the ball first and what happens Marquez Valdez-Scantling fumbles the ball deep in their own territory to where the Colts then kick a field goal Rodrigo Blankenship wins the game huge game for the Colts to win as they keep pace with the Tennessee Titans in the division and we're going to get to them because they're actually one of the big games next week for week 12 in the NFL so we'll touch on that in a minute tough loss there for the Packers but what can you do I know it's a game that Matt LaFleur could look at at the end of the season and say, geez, that could have been the game to get us to a one seed, that get us that bye, and still plenty of football to be played, but that may be one that they are going to think about long and hard as a, not a season-changing game or season-defining game, but one that they would certainly like to have back. So the Colts hand the Packers their third loss and look forward to a matchup with the Titans for the AFC South supremacy. And then lastly, the Steelers... 10-0, another victory, what could you say? The beat keeps rolling on for the black and gold. Yesterday, slow out of the gate again, but they were able to get a field goal, then march down the field for a touchdown between Roethlisberger and Chase Claypool, the rookie wide receiver. And then on the ensuing drive, which was, to me, the turning point of the whole game, Jake Luton is moving down the field, getting his chunks, DJ Chark, James Robinson with a contribution, They're in the red zone, and what happens? They get a pass deflected at the line of scrimmage, up in the air, intercepted by Minka Fitzpatrick. Goes the other way, stopped it around the Steeler 40-yard line, but then they punch it in on that drive. Touchdown, Benny Snell from the one-yard line, 17-3, and that was pretty much the game. Four interceptions later, defense plays well. They've played well here the last two weeks. I get it. It's just the Bengals and the Jacksonville Jaguars, understood. But at 10-0, I know a lot of the talk, Can they run the table? Can they go undefeated? I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. No. They have too many tough games on the schedule. 
After this game against Baltimore upcoming, they have to go to Buffalo for a Sunday night. All right, they play the Washington football team and then the Bengals where they're going to have a backup quarterback, but they have to play Indy in their building. And then Cleveland, they're going to need the game. And I like to hear what Ben Roethlisberger and even Mike Tomlin said. It's not about perfection. It's about Lombardi's. And to me, I'm not jumping up and down to the thought of 16-0 because it is so far-fetched from my mind that it's going to hurt them to win 16 games in the regular season than it will to help them. Because all the pressure will mount. It's going to be the 2007 Pats all over again. All I want them to do is play well, win games. They're going to lose a couple along the way. Can't win them all. And hopefully they'll get the top seed, have a bye, and then let's see what happens in January. That's how I look at the Steelers team right now. So as much as you want to look at the Jets and where they're going to win a game, I think the Steelers, if you want to look at right now, is the likelihood of the Steelers losing a game more so than the Jets winning a game? I think the Steelers are going to lose a game before the Jets win a game. Although I think the Jets are going to win at some point. I don't think they're going to go in 16. But we'll see how it all shakes down. Now as we look ahead to the Thanksgiving schedule... From the looks of it, now you're going to have a decent 4 o'clock game as we talked about with Washington and Dallas. Now, it could be a snooze fest, who knows, but there's something on the line there in that game, so it's going to be worth watching from that regard. Your first game is Houston at Detroit. No one's going to care. That's one of those games where you have it on the background, you pop your head every now and again to see what's going on, and that's it. And then your night game is Baltimore-Pittsburgh. And this is where the Steelers are going to face a team that is desperate, They know that their season is on the line. I think the division is already a wrap. They're already four and a half games ahead that even if Baltimore were to win, and although they'll be tied head-to-head, but they'll still be three games behind, and you would think the Steelers are going to win at least three more games because you look at Washington on their schedule. You're also looking at Cincinnati. And who knows that Cleveland Indianapolis, you could flip-flop one of those two games. So they're going to win at least three more games and go 13-3. and So to me, the division is already on ice pending the quarterback being hurt and an absolute meltdown by the Steelers here over the final six weeks. But they could certainly put their foot on the throats of the Ravens by not only winning this game, winning the division, and at the same time, pretty much putting their playoff hopes out to sea, which I would love to see. And it's going to be a competitive game. It's going to be a close game. I don't care what the spread is right now. The spread could be five. Usually this game is about three, three and a half. But we all know Ravens-Steelers always comes down to one possession. And you would think the Steelers are the healthier team. They're playing in their building. Ravens, who just came off a tough physical game where the Steelers obviously had it easy, especially when you got into the second half of that game. So hopefully that'll benefit the Steelers here in the short term. But as we all know, Ravens-Steelers is a whole different beast. We would think the Steelers would win the game, and I would think that they would. But again, you just never know with these division games, and especially with a team like the Ravens, where they're going to show a lot of pride, and they're going to come out guns a-blazing to do their best to save their season. As far as the games on Sunday, I think it's highlighted by Tennessee at Indianapolis. If Indy wins, they are going to be the front runners to win that division. They beat Tennessee two weeks ago, as we know, on the Thursday night game. And now they have another crack at them to see if they could either put a stranglehold on the division or Tennessee is going to have second thoughts. I think it's going to be fascinating. You wonder whether or not both teams played Tough physical games. Both games actually went into overtime. You figure Tennessee-Baltimore was a little bit more stressful for Tennessee because anytime you're going to play those two type of physical teams with Tennessee and Baltimore, it is going to be a long trip to the 
ice bath. If you're Derrick Henry, if you're Ryan Tannehill, A.J. Brown, Jonu Smith, etc. But I could see this being just a toss-up. I mean, the game's in Indianapolis, but I could see Tennessee going in there and winning that game. And even though Tennessee has not played well here over the last month, although they do have a couple of victories to show for it, especially this one yesterday, but will it be enough to go up to Indianapolis and steal a victory there so where they could put themselves in a good position to win a division and host a playoff game come January. Some of your other games, your Sunday night game is Chicago-Green Bay and Chicago, I don't want to see any more of the Bears this year. I just don't. You're going to see in there Sunday night, maybe the Packers could put them out of their misery. We'll wait and see. Your Monday night game is Seattle at Philadelphia. Ugh, a game. It means something. We know, understood because of the Eagles and we know Seattle's a team that's at the top of the NFC West, but that's one that you're not going to follow or watch every snap. As far as the other games over the weekend, your Sunday afternoon game is Kansas City at Tampa. That's going to be fascinating. Mahomes versus Brady. And we'll see what Tampa does tonight at home against the Rams. So that's going to be key. Who comes out of that game healthy to set up that matchup is going to be critical. But you're looking at Las Vegas at Atlanta, Chargers at Buffalo, the Giants at Cincinnati, Carolina at Minnesota, Arizona, New England. If New England would have won yesterday, it would have been a little bit more intriguing. But with their loss, I think that they're not going to make the postseason. Uh, That's all there is to it. Miami at the Jets, Cleveland at Jacksonville, New Orleans at Denver, San Francisco at Los Angeles. Pretty much wraps up your week 12 in the NFL. So a couple of good games, not a lot of good games. Obviously, the Thanksgiving is going to kick off the weekend, which is fantastic. We all love that. And you have no bye week this week because of Thanksgiving but the following week is the final one which is weird because I don't believe that there's been a bye week this late in the season or at least into December from what I can recall but the final two teams that have not reached their bye weeks are Tampa and Carolina which will be the weekend of December 3rd the Thursday night game Dallas and Baltimore and then Sunday where you have your slate of games highlighted by Buffalo at San Francisco, your Monday night game. So that's going to be the final week of buys in a week 13. And that pretty much does it there for the pro circuit. Now to turn our attention to college, the big game of the weekend was the number 10th ranked Indiana Hoosiers going to Columbus to face the Ohio State Buckeyes. And as I said last week, I can't recall, as long as I've been on this planet, a bigger college football game for the Indiana Hoosiers than this one. And this was a game that was as advertised, but there was a little caveat from the standpoint of it wasn't as close as the final score indicated. So if you were to pull up your phone and check out the scores for Saturday, and at about 3.30, 3.45, you look at it and you say, wow, Ohio State won 42-35? That must have been a nail-biter. That was not the case. Now, The game early on, Indiana had opportunities where Justin Fields threw a couple of early picks. Ohio State, right out of the gate, scores a touchdown. After two plays, a 10-yard touchdown pass to Garrett Wilson from Justin Fields. And you think to yourself, this could be a long afternoon for the Hoosiers. They had a couple of interceptions there by Justin Fields, which set them up in pretty good position. They went three and out on one. And then they had a punt on another where they had the ball in Ohio State territory, weren't able to do anything with it. They did score a touchdown there in the second quarter, but then 
that's when Ohio State took off, where Master Teague had two touchdown runs, one of 41 yards and then one of two, where right at the end of the quarter, Justin Fields adds a run of his own, 28-7, and even right out of the gate from the start of the third quarter, they pretty much did a carbon copy of what they did to start off the first quarter, where they took a 35-7 lead, and you're thinking to yourself, Indiana's not in the class of Ohio State. But even at 35-7, with the game looking like it's out of reach, Michael Penix Jr., who is your Heisman Trophy hopeful, and you would think he's going to be in the running for the Heisman Trophy this year, even with it being a shortened season. With him having to pass the ball and having to throw the ball downfield to get back in the game, in which they did to the tune of a couple of scores to make it 35-21. And just as you think, with them getting the ball late in the third quarter to try to make it into a one-score game, the biggest play of the game was the pick six there at the end of the third where he just threw an out and it was taken there to the house by Sean Wade, 36 yards, which proved to be the difference of the game. And then even though Indiana came fighting back with a couple of touchdowns there, even to the point where they had the ball twice in the fourth quarter, they cut it to within one with about 10:26 to go. Then the Buckeyes had a decent drive. They moved the chains. Then they actually turned the ball over on downs to where the Hoosiers had the ball with about 5.36 to go. And what did they do? They went three and out. Ohio State then gets the ball. They give it back to the Buckeyes pretty much with less time on the clock and they had to resort to an almost Cal-Stanford play back in 1982, which the anniversary of that was just a few days ago, for those who remember that play, the famous... Cal Stanford at the end of the game, the million laterals to where the player, I believe it was Kevin Moen, who pretty much was jumped on the back of the band, uh, the tuba player, the trumpet player at the end of the game. So a valiant effort by the Hoosiers, but fell way too short and dug too deep of a hole for them to come back and try to make it a game. And to me, the interception was the killer because even if they would have gone downfield to kick a field goal, even get a touchdown to maybe cut it to within one score, who knows how Ohio State would have responded at that point. Indiana would have had a lot of gas in their tank after being down by 28 points. But that was just a backbreaker, that interception there late in the third, although they did make it a game into the fourth quarter and had a couple of chances to get close. But it wasn't to be as Ohio State prevails there, 42-35. And give it up for Penix. 27 for 51, 491 yards, five touchdowns, and the costly pick, which I'm sure he would love to have back. But you had performances there. Ohio State, Justin Fields, who had those turnovers there in the first half. Numbers at the end of the day, 18 for 30 for 300 sharp, two TDs. Also had that touchdown run to boot. And then we talked about Master Teague and the performance that he had, the numbers that he put up there with a big game on the ground for 36, excuse me, 26 for 169 and two touchdowns. Also, Garrett Wilson had a big game, as we've seen there, with 169 yards and two TDs. Also got to give it up for Ty Freifogel, the wide receiver there for Indiana, who had a monster game, 7 for 218 with three touchdowns of his own. Again, entertaining. Indiana, they put themselves on the map. What does this mean here for the Bulls and for them to try to make it up a little bit closer? This was a big loss, a big blow. Uh, You can pretty much forget about it, but we'll see. For a Hoosier team, if they could build this moving forward into next year to be that team that could be part of the top of the Big Ten food chain, considering Michigan is taking a step back, Penn State as well, can Indiana be that team to get themselves to more on a national scale where people will take them seriously? Obviously, it remains to be seen, but they've had an enormous year to this point, 
And kudos to them for fighting back and making it in the game even though it was out of hand there early third quarter. Now we look at a couple other games on the docket. Cincinnati, a team that's on the outside with BYU trying to squeeze into that top four. They beat UCF and UCF actually had a lead late there in the third quarter. But with Cincinnati's quarterback, Desmond Ritter, ran for a score and threw for one in the fourth, had a lead even though the Central Florida team did get a touchdown to tack on with a two-point conversion to make it close. But Cincinnati was able to hold on there, 36-33. And right now they're ranked number seven in the country. So they're trying to move up the ladder, see what they could do to eke in to see if one of those top four teams will fall, which looks like it may not happen. But Cincinnati prevails to see another week. We'll see how that plays out there. Also with the rest of the college football schedule on Saturday, which you're not going to really get crazy about. We all know what the highlight game was and we already discussed, but when Oklahoma State and Oklahoma, I know that was a big game where a lot of people are going to look at, especially in that region where Oklahoma blew the doors off of the Cowboys of Oklahoma State 41-13. I know you had Oregon move themselves up in the top 10 and win a game against UCLA. Northwestern beats Wisconsin. The kid Graham Mertz who had COVID, the quarterback freshman from Wisconsin, did not play well. And Northwestern, I mean, what could you say? Northwestern, as we all know, they've been a perennial laughingstock and have had teams of late that have performed a lot better than they have going back into the 80s and pretty much their whole existence as a college football team. But give it up for them for upsetting the Badgers there, Wisconsin, on Saturday. But other than that, you really don't have anything else that you know, you're going to go crazy about. I mean, that's just how the college football season is right now. Alabama beats Kentucky, no big deal there. Florida upends Vandy. And we go down the list. For those who are into Coastal Carolina, they beat Appalachian State. Uh, that's pretty much a college football. And before I get to the schedule next week, let me comment on Dabo Swinney, who made some remarks yesterday in reference to Florida State for them having to postpone the game between Clemson and Florida State there on Saturday. Now, a Clemson player came up with a positive test on Friday night prior to the game, and the administration and coach Mike Norvell thought it was best to not play against Clemson due to the state of everything that's happening with coronavirus, as we all know. And for Sweeney to come out and say what he said, I believe he's absolutely right. And you know me, I'm more or less on the air to side of caution to be sure that Keep your players safe in any league. doesn't matter, college, pros, etc. But for him to come out and say that it was an excuse to cancel the game, and with Florida State having one of their worst seasons ever in the history of Seminole football, I kind of look at it the same way. And if you're Clemson, that you're trying to get back on the beam with a season that has been interrupted with COVID in its own right, with its own player, and even though Dabble Sweeney could look at that and say, eh, all right, but we all know the way the testing is and as extensive as it is, on all fronts, college especially, you would think. And that player could have been pulled from the game or whatever other player that could have been in close contact, even with a negative result, that the game still could have been played. I could see if it was a number of players. I could see if it was just a a whole gang of players that were unable to play because they were not only in close contact, but also came down with COVID. Because I'm sure they probably tested these players Saturday morning prior to getting on the bus to go to the stadium. And for Norville to do that, that's just an awful job. Because if Florida State was competing 
for a national title or were ranked in the top 10, you think Florida State would have just said, ah, we're not going to play this game. We're going to chuck it. So you're going to have to deal with it. And that's that. Not the case. No chance. So I agree with Swinney on this one because if it was multiple players, coaches, etc., you have an argument. One player and it was on the Clemson team where, again, I understand Florida State, they don't want to come close contact with that player. And this player was unnamed at this juncture right now, so it was undisclosed as to who it was. But for Norville to do that, that is just an awful job. And I agree with Sweeney. Here's a team that's trying to get their season back on the tracks. Now, I know they played last week with Lawrence, but considering that they want to just continue to play, they don't want to have their season interrupted or have to make up these games down the road, which, you know, there's not that much room for error when it comes to postponing and rescheduling these games. As we know, the weeks are now whittling down to its precious few before we get to mid-December and then the bowl season, which will take place shortly thereafter. But I, I totally am 100% agreement with Sweeney and what he had to say about that. Because if FSU was circa 1995, there is no way they would have missed this game. They would have played this game with the quickness to want to upstage and in their own building. Doesn't make any sense to me, people. So, uh, to me, just a bad job by Florida State all around. And as far as the games this week, you always like those games after Thanksgiving where you could heat up your leftovers and take a look at what's happening in the college football landscape. But the only game of note, I think, is Iowa State and Texas. Now, in the grand scheme of things, is it going to mean anything when it comes to bowl season and championship aspirations? Absolutely not. But you have that you can look forward to. Notre Dame plays on Friday against North Carolina, so they have to travel there. North Carolina is ranked 25th in the nation. What does that mean for them? That would be a just an enormous win for them if they could somehow pull the upset against the Fighting Irish. So you want to keep your eyes on that. But the Saturday slate, nothing really to go crazy about. Ohio State, Illinois. Florida hosting Kentucky, Indiana, Maryland, Oklahoma State, Texas Tech. Uh, yeah, you just, these are the games you're going to have. Not a lot to go crazy about. You do have Auburn and Alabama where Alabama's going to want to get some revenge from last year where Auburn beat them, if you remember, in that wild game where Auburn pulled it out late and pretty much dashed the championship aspirations of the Crimson Tide because remember, they lost to LSU, Joe Burrow, and then to Auburn. At this time last year. So you know they're going to want to exact some sort of revenge. Against the Tigers. So that's what we have there. Let's turn our attention to the NBA. Because it has been a wild couple of days. And I had a lot to speak on this. So as we pull out some of the stuff from the oven. And we get back to the top of the stove. As I'm continuing to stir and shake. And move and bake. The NBA. I'll start with the draft. And there weren't any surprises. I'm not going to get into all the crazy trades, picks, this, that, whatever. We know Oklahoma City was part of a bunch of trades. I just want to get to the draft picks for right now. As I said last week, I wasn't fully invested in this draft because we haven't seen these players in forever. We haven't monitored or followed the Anthony Edwards of the world, the James Wisemans, the LaMelo Balls, the OB Toppins. You could go down the whole list. But when you look at how everything broke down, and I'm not even going to go into winners and losers because, again, I haven't really seen these players. I don't know what to expect, etc. But what I can say is this. Were you surprised 
by what happened at the top of the draft? Absolutely not. I know the Knicks fans going crazy over Obi Toppin, a guy that is a local product from Westchester. We all know the potential that he has. He is a little bit raw, but the excitement is starting to build here in New York for a Knicks team that they're not going to do much this year, if any, despite the roster being paired 40 million and now they're starting to sign a couple of fringe free agents, which I'll get to in a little bit. But when you look at Toppin, you're hoping for some buzz here as a Knicks fan because as we've known for the last 20 years, there's been zero buzz for the Knickerbockers. But when you see Anthony Edwards going to Minnesota, you're going to pair him with D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns. Hopefully you have the beginnings of something there with Minnesota as we thought to see or we thought of years ago where Andrew Wiggins with the trade with Cleveland being paired with the big man was going to lead to big things. All that led to was a quick playoff exit Back in what, 2016-17 where the Rockets disposed of them in five games. So that's all the Timberwolves have to show for over the course of the last five to seven years. So let's see, by bringing in Edwards, a scorer, a guy you would think that's going to work well with D'Angelo Russell, who's also a scoring guard, to go with the big man. Let's see where that could lead the Timberwolves to, not just for this year, but down the road. James Wiseman, the guy that Golden State picked. Another guy who's raw. But big, a rim protector, grab some rebounds for the likes of Steph Curry and Andrew Wiggins, provided that he doesn't get moved this year. And I'll get to Clay Thompson in a little bit as far as the injury that he suffered, the unfortunate injury that took place last week. Uh, Other than that, people, I'm not going to get into steals. I'm not going to get into who are the sleepers, who are the guys that were reaches again. I understand people said, but Jay Reels, I come to you to get all my information. Understood. And I'm being real with you guys. But at the same time, college basketball hasn't been on the sports radar in over eight months. And because we didn't have any buzz or any hype leading up into this draft as far as workouts, as far as draft combine, things of that nature, you didn't really have anything to chew on when it came to this draft. So therefore, I'm not going to sit here and break down every team or break down who did what, winners, losers of the draft. I'm not going to do that. I can tell you about free agency and what's going on so far, which I'll get to right now. And you know what? I will get to one trade where Chris Paul goes to Phoenix and that led a whole chain of events where Oklahoma City then sends Kelly Oubre and then Kelly Oubre is going to be shipped from there to Golden State. And then also Al Horford gets shipped from Philly to OKC and you think Horford's probably going to be flipped for somebody at some point because they're going to have to pay him $30 million a year for the next couple of years. So he had a lot of craziness going on with the trade front. But as far as Chris Paul's concerned, I'm a little surprised that he goes to Phoenix. And for all those people out there that are going crazy, thinking how Phoenix played going into the bubble, they had that big winning streak. I think they won, what, eight games in a row before they fell short of making it to the playing game where Memphis played Portland and we know how that unfolded. But for those who are jumping on the Phoenix bandwagon saying that his leadership, his knowledge, his presence is just going to make the Phoenix Suns be a sleeper team out West. And Phoenix has made some deals here, but I got to believe it when I see it. There's no way that I'm right away going to anoint Phoenix as a top four or even a top six Western Conference playoff team. Right, DeAndre Ayton and his ability down low at the post. We know about Devin Booker, understood. He's already been working out with Chris Paul, fantastic. 
Now, Paul, let's see if we can take him to the next level. Okay, well, what is that next level? I mean, seriously, to make it to a four seed in the Western Conference? For them to be sacrificial lambs to the Lakers or the Clippers? This, the West is still loaded. When you look at how these teams are shaping up here. And Phoenix, they may have a bright future. Two, three years down the road. But I can't see this upcoming season being one of those that everybody's going to jump on the Phoenix Suns bandwagon. I, I don't see it. And I hope they perform well. I hope they're a good story. We know Phoenix has been just a, a god-awful team. You could arguably say that they've been the Knicks West, especially over the last 10 years. But at the same time, I'm not going to look at this team as, oh, this is the team to look out for here in the 2020-2021 season. I'm not going to anoint them to be that team. Uh, let me get to Clay Thompson before I get to these deals. Just a terrible blow because a lot of people thought with Curry, Thompson fully healthy, Draymond Green, Andrew Wiggins, the number one pick, that this could be a team that could crack the top four in the Western Conference. And right now, it's probably going to be a playoff team. They'll probably be at the bottom eight of those top eight, but they're not going to go far or do much. And it's just sad. Torn Achilles... I believe during the workout and it was the other leg, not the knee that he suffered the ACL with in the NBA finals game, game six against the Raptors there last year, but just a terrible break. And Clay Thompson is one of my favorite players in the league. I love Thompson. I wish that he could have been a Celtic even a few years back. People have asked me if there's one guy that could take the Celtics to the next level. This was pre Kyrie and Jalen Brown when he was potentially on the market to either be traded or maybe even sign a long deal. I've always loved Klay Thompson. I thought he would have been the perfect Celtic. Defense, length, shooting ability, etc. But just, uh, what can I say? Terrible blow, tough break for the Warriors as I'm sure they were going to go into the season ready to get back to the top of the NBA pantheon of elite teams. But that's not going to be the case this year. So let's hope for a speedy recovery for Klay Thompson. Now, as far as these signings go, I'll start with the the Aaron Fox, 5 for 163. No surprise there. Sacramento has to extend this kid. Donovan Mitchell, same there, 5 for 195. Big deal for the Jazz to keep their star number one pick from Louisville. And then all the other signings that are the fringe signings. The one surprise from the week one was Montrezl Harrell signing a two-year deal with the Lakers. By him going from the Clippers to the Lakers, not only is that a blow to the Clippers, but that is going to not only haunt them, but at the same time, that's just going to propel the Lakers to be the favorites out West. Now, what in the hell is happening with Anthony Davis right now? He's going to stay with the Lakers. I have no ifs, ands, buts about it. And maybe he's just not going to say weigh his options because I'm sure he wants to get that sweetheart deal. It's not going to be at a discount. We all know. But I'm sure he's taking his time. He wants to lay out the groundwork for a deal with him and Clutch and Rich Paul, etc. And that deal is going to be consummated, you would think, if not right before Thanksgiving, maybe right after. It has to. Because the longer this drags out, it's going to make you wonder, well, what the hell is taking so long? And even though Davis is the free agent prize, but there's no way he's going to go anywhere. But back to Harold, it's a thing where it makes him longer, it makes him deeper, it makes him stronger. Because last year, you talked about them being a two-man show. And if you got playoff Rondo, fantastic. But where else are you going to get contributions? And not that Harold's a guy that's going to put up a ton of points. But we know that he's a guy that's going to bring high energy. 
That's going to bring rebounding. That's going to bring defense. And it's also going to give Anthony Davis a blow at that end of the floor. So just a great pickup by the Lakers there and a tough blow by the Clippers who bring in Serge Ibaka to replace Montrezl Harrell. And whatever Ibaka has left, I'm sure he's going to provide in the absence of Montrezl Harrell. But at the same time, it's not cutting the mustard. Especially if you're a Clipper fan. And then the Lakers also bring in Marcus Gasol for insurance. Two years. I don't know how much money, but you know it's not going to be a lot considering the Lakers are going to pony up a King's Ransom for the aforementioned AD. And we know what LeBron's making. Rondo leaves for Atlanta, and Atlanta's retooling, bringing in players of Bogdan Bogdanovic, and he was a guy that was supposed to go in that deal to the Bucks, and that didn't happen. And we know about Eric Bledsoe going to New Orleans, where Drew Holiday is going to Milwaukee to try to do whatever it takes to keep Giannis Antetokounmpo there and he's going to be free agent public enemy number one come next year and that's going to be all the talk between now and the offseason of next year because if Giannis goes then the Bucks are going to be toast Uh, let's just call it as we see it and we've said that time and time again and back to Atlanta they also signed Danilo Gallinari they're trying to retool their team around Trey Young and the Hawks just want to be competitive there in an East that, yeah, maybe they could squeeze in and sneak into the playoffs because we know that the East is a little top-heavy when it comes to Philly, Boston, Toronto, Brooklyn. So if Atlanta could squeeze in anywhere between 5 and 8, Miami, got to throw them in the mix. If the Hawks could squeeze in there by bringing in a bunch of these veterans, kudos to them. You also had... Dwight Howard go to Philadelphia for what that's worth for a year. Fred Van Fleet resigns with the Raptors at four years at $85 million. Joe Harris the same, but $10 million less with Brooklyn, which I thought that's a, a very underrated deal for them. Christian Wood to Houston, three years, $41 million. He's the kid that was on the Pistons, who was one of the other players that contracted COVID. I hate to kind of bring that up as... For people who don't know who Christian Wood is, after Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, but he gets a deal there to be a part of the Rockets. I mentioned the Knicks as they paired forty million in salary, and they bring in Austin Rivers three years for ten million. Are you going to go crazy? Are you going to jump up and down for that if you're a Knicks fan? Absolutely not. But it's a start in the right direction. You're not paying him a ton of money. They also add Nerlens Noel, the big man, and Alfred Payton as they re up with him. To be a part of the Knicks this coming season. So Knicks fans are not going to break out the blue and orange pom-poms for those moves. We all know it's a bigger deal down the road. Maybe with Giannis. Remains to be seen. But with the Knicks shedding some payroll. They look like they have a semblance of doing something for the future. They're not just trying to go crazy and spend money like drunken sailors. So right now they're doing the right thing by just slowly but surely piecing this team together. And even with small deals which is the right thing. And now let me get to the Celtics. When word came out that Gordon Hayward wanted a couple of days, because Tuesday was the deadline on whether or not he wanted to opt out of his final year as a Celtic. And he needed a couple more days for whatever that was. And the executives, Danny Ainge and company, granted him that. So Thursday by, I guess it was what, 5 p.m., 6 p.m., whatever it was, the deadline, he had to notify them on whether or not he wanted to either come back for his last year on his player option with the Celtics or go elsewhere. So what does he do? He opts out. 
He then signs with the Charlotte Hornets there on Friday. Once the free agent curtain was raised 6 p.m. there just a few days ago. And he signs with Charlotte. Four years at $120 million. And for the second year in a row, the Celtics, all they got to do is wipe their brows and say, Phew. Because with Horford leaving for Philadelphia last year, signing his deal, I believe that was four for $109 million. And then now Hayward doing the same. And I'm not going to knock Hayward out the door. It's definitely not going to knock him as a person, without question. But the first year, we know how that went. And let's just put that aside. And the second year was going to be a psychological year for him. Last year, he played 52 games. He had his moments. But he was not going to be the big player on this team. That's all there is to it. And I'm sure that went into his thinking. Now, why did it take him 48 hours extra, considering he had all this time from losing Game 6 to Miami in the bubble till? Last Tuesday is beyond me. Why he needed another 48 hours? I mean, please, come on, Gordon. Uh, did you not know what you wanted to do at that point, considering you had about two months to sit on this? But it was a move that the Celtics, I'm sure they were holding their collective breaths because even though with one more year and $34 million, they know that they were going to pay Jason Tatum, and I'll get to him in a second. But for the amount of money that they've invested in Hayward and what they got back, and he's a guy that can be effective, can be an all-star player, but he was too trick-or-treat for me and for my liking. With Hayward, you could get those games. You could get those 8 for 12s, 24 points, 5 of 6 from 3, 8 boards, 6 assists. You could get those games from him. But those games were few and far between than the other games that you get where it's 4 for 13, 16 points, 6 rebounds, 3 assists. And when you're paying someone $34 million and those games are few and far between, good riddance. And now, in the no-brainer of all no-brainers, the Celtics were going to fork over the money that Gordon Hayward would have received in his deal with Charlotte to Jason Tatum, giving him the five-year, $195 million deal. As the face of the franchise, we know Jalen Brown's already locked in with his deal. Kemba Walker still has three more years. And then the Celtics, who had signed Ennis Kantner, and then they traded him in a three-way deal to get two draft picks from Memphis back as he goes to Portland. They also signed Tristan Thompson. Let's see what he could bring to a team. Hopefully his off-the-court shenanigans won't affect his play on the court. But the Celtics did what they had to do. By not only exciting Tatum to that long-term deal, but thanking their lucky stars that Gordon Hayward wasn't coming back. And we'll see how they shape up this team. They got the two number one picks, which I couldn't tell you from a hole in the wall whether they're going to be good or not. So that remains to be seen. But we have an NBA season that's going to be less than a month away. And before you know it, we're going to be talking hoops and getting ready to tip the ball off for a 2020-2021 season. Which, with nothing else to watch right now other than football, is going to be welcomed with open arms. And then lastly, the Raptors are going to play their upcoming season in Tampa. Which makes me think, what happened with Buffalo? I know they'll probably have some scheduling difficulties as the Sabres play in their arena. It used to be called the HSBC Arena. I don't know if it could still be called that, but we know that these name changes happen every five minutes. But considering that Toronto is just an hour from Buffalo, but why weren't they able to work out a deal to start in December and into 2021 as opposed to going 
about 1,100 miles south and having to play their games in Tampa. Now, I'm sure the Raptors are going to love that because they don't have to worry about the cold weather. But what's interesting is is that they're going to have a lot more travel when they play the teams in the Northeast, whether you're New York, Brooklyn, Boston, Philadelphia. So let's see if that wears on them throughout the course of a 72-game schedule. And obviously the reason why they're playing down in Tampa as opposed to Toronto is because of the restrictions by government, travel in and out of the country. So therefore, they want to make sure that this is all cleared up before any type of teams are able to fly in and out with ease and not with the coronavirus hanging over everybody's head. And with the other winter sport real quick, the NHL, which is looking to start a 66-game season, maybe on January 1st, Well, right now that's up in the air because as the NHL Players Association said the other day, they were blindsided by changes that the owners are looking to make in hopes to raise that curtain maybe by January 1st or the 10th or whatever it is because they want to put forth a 66-game season to be completed by July 15th and then also discuss what the next season will entail, which will probably be the first or second week of October so they can get back on schedule. Same for the NBA for that matter. But with the NHL, now with the collective bargaining agreement where it was ratified back in July, and this is July. This was already in the middle of the coronavirus. The pandemic was in full effect prior to the restart of the season and the postseason up in Canada, in Toronto and Edmonton. But now what they want to do is they want a new proposal to where the kickbacks when it comes to the escrow are going to jump from 20 to 25%. And then the deferred payments, which were originally going to be 10% for the 2020-21 season, now is going to be in upwards of 20%. Did they not have the foresight back in July that there weren't going to be fans in attendance starting whenever it was going to be, whether it was going to be December, January, February? Did they automatically think that they were going to have sold out buildings at the start of the next season? Not looking at the landscape of coronavirus, thinking that, well, hey, maybe we should up this to 15 or 20% as opposed to giving them the 10% when it comes to deferred payments and now we're going to have to double that and then the escrow where it comes to all the money that's going to be shared by the revenue which is not going to come from gate receipts, concessions, parking, etc. Now they want to up that 5 more percent. You've had players and they didn't put their names attached to it but when you have players coming out saying we just signed a new CBA four months ago And there's a quote. And in that agreement, we accounted for the season being not a typical season. And now they're trying to walk it back and change the structure on us? That's bull. If we came to them and said we wanted to amend the terms, no way that would fly. And you know that that's not going to be the case because the owners are going to grasp at every penny. To a certain extent, rightfully so, because of no fans. But as I said a minute ago, did they not have the foresight in July to think that, wait, we may not have fans in the building, so let's go ahead with this proposal as opposed to saying, hey, we may have fans or half of a building or a quarter of a building. It's going to be quite all right. It's going to be okay. Everybody's going to sing Kumbaya, and away we go. And now you have this mess. And even another player who came out and said, by no means do we want to say, screw you guys. We don't want to make this work. It's more that we just agreed on something five months ago, and why do we have to change it again? And guess what? The players have every right to say that. This wasn't agreed upon in March. This wasn't agreed upon at the very start of this pandemic when they didn't have 
the wherewithal or even to think that this was going to be the case eight, nine, ten months later and pretty much going into next year, possibly to the spring and even to the summer. So that's just a bad job by the owners. They should have known better. And maybe they just thought that pie in the sky, that everything was going to be okay come January, that they could have fans in the building and revenue streaming and so on and so forth. And as we see right now with the way coronavirus has just been out of control, that is a light at the end of the tunnel that is not going to be seen for months on end. So that's what you have there with the NHL. And just a bad, a tough break. Hopefully they could come to some sort of agreement. Hopefully they could be able to come where some in the middle. The owners still have a ton of money despite them not getting a lot here throughout the course of this bubble in Edmonton, Toronto, but they're going to have to make do. They can't do the players like this. It's just a bad job and a bad look on their part. And for once, we could actually say it's the owners that are at fault, not the players, where everybody always looks at the players greedy. You want every last dollar. You can't make concessions, so on and so forth, whatever. But this one is strictly on the owners. And let's wrap this up with baseball. And speaking of free agency, this is going to be a long, cold, hard winter if your name is DJ LeMahieu, Trevor Bauer, George Springer, JT Realmuto, Marcel Ozuna, just to name a few. Only because when you look at the current climate of the way sports is and coronavirus and no revenue coming in, an offseason that could potentially be up to the last minute to sign these guys and not on long-term deals, I might add. And it's not even just based on this year and what's happening with coronavirus. As a reminder, people, we know at the end of the 2021 season, whether it gets kicked off on April 1st, where the schedules are out and that's when the baseball season is going to begin, fans are no fans, the outlook of coronavirus looks like maybe the spring will start making that turn into the summer to where a vaccination is going to be disseminated throughout the country and the world to maybe some sort of normalcy later in the summer and into the fall. But with all that being said, you have to remember, at the end of that 2021 rainbow is a collective bargaining agreement which needs to be finalized between the players and owners of the MLB. And we all know that that is going to be a 15-round, knockdown, drag-down heavyweight fight where who knows if there's going to be a baseball season in 2022 and beyond. Now, you would think at some point there's going to be an agreement from the time November 1st of next year to whenever that may be. It could probably bleed into the spring and into the summer of the following year, but you think baseball is going to come back at a certain point. And that's a whole other story that I'll get to another time. But just for the sake of these free agents, it's not even just a matter of coronavirus and not getting a long-term deal because of what's happening in this country and what's happening with all the sports for that matter. But because of that collective bargaining agreement next year, we don't know if there's going to be baseball played after that. So you think these owners are going to come out to those aforementioned players and all the other players that follow after them that they're going to get this big payday? I wouldn't be surprised if these owners are going to come out with one or two-year deals. And I know it may sound unfair, especially if you're DJ LeMahieu, who just came off of a two-year, $24 million deal and where you were in the top three of MVP both years and won a batting title this year with an asterisk, of course, 60 games. But you're going to get screwed here. And that's not to say these players are not going to get signed or never going to get signed. But it's going to be dictated by what's taking place now and what could take place in the distant future. 
And it just makes you wonder whether or not this time of the year where the hot stove starts to percolate and the winter meetings, which will take place December 6th through 10th virtually now, originally it was supposed to be in Dallas over the course of those four days. But right now, all we have to do is just throw our hands up in the air and just wonder whether or not these players are going to be signed on a dotted line at any point throughout this offseason, which a lot of it usually percolates around Thanksgiving. Notwithstanding a couple of years ago with the whole Bryce Harper, Manny Machado fiasco, which they didn't pretty much get signed until the start of spring training. But who knows if we're going to have anything to have cooking. And Lord knows I've been cooking with a bunch of burners at the top. And it looks like the Major League Baseball burner is close to being off right now. It is low to the point where you could barely see the flame. And who knows if it's going to get heated up at any point with all that's going on here. So right now, I'm going to say that for those guys and for a lot of the other players in Major League Baseball, fasten your seatbelts because if you're not going to sign a short-term deal right now and you're looking for that four, five, six, seven-year deal, I suggest you do not hold your breath because it doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon and winter is coming. All right, let me get to my hero in zero of the week. My hero of the week is one-time Miami Dolphin, part of the no-name defense of the undefeated team, Jake Scott, the safety, who died at the age of 75 on Friday. Stellar career, 49 interceptions, 13 fumble recoveries, was a two-time first-team All-Pro. Again, with that defense going back to Dick Anderson, highlighted with Nick Bonacani there. The undefeated season, 1972. How can we forget 17-0? and And the Dolphins this year alone, Nick Bonacani, Don Shula. We could go down the list of who have passed away, and we've said it time and time again. I tell you, if we had an in-memoriam for this year, that could be a whole show right there. I mean, literally, you could break down every athlete, coach, executive, etc., who have passed away, and that could probably be two podcasts. That's how long it is. But thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the rugged safety there, Jake Scott. At the age of 75. And my zero of the week. And you thought I forgot people? Sadly I have to give this one to. New York Mets second baseman. Robinson Cano. Tested positive for performance enhancing drugs. Which means he's going to be suspended. For the entire. 162 game season. For 2021. Remember he got busted as a member. Of the Seattle Mariners in 2018. To the tune of 80 games. And now here it is, late in his career, he's going to be 39, I believe, by the time he comes back in the year 2022, with two years left on his deal. They do not have to pay him the $24 million this upcoming year, which is good for the Mets. Let's see what they do with that money. But Robinson Cano, my guy, what were you thinking? What were you doing? You are my zero of the week. That'll wrap up episode 165. I appreciate you guys for taking the time out to download and listen to what it is I have to say about the world of sports. I truly do. And as I said at the top, and I'll say it now, if you haven't subscribed, rated, and reviewed this podcast, what are you waiting for? Please do so at all the available platforms that are out there, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, Amazon Music. You can even go to the website at jreels.com to know more about me if this is your first time. If you want to get an idea of who I am, what I've been doing. Yes, I've been here for over two and a half years and will continue to talk strong about what it is that I love. And that's sports 
and being able to share my thoughts, my opinions, my analysis to entertain and inform you on what's happening in the world of sports. So please subscribe, rate, and review because all that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there and in turn generate interest for those who aren't familiar with this podcast as far as guests are concerned, whether it's the former or current athlete, the studio host, blogger, sports writer, broadcaster, whomever it may be, I want them to share their experiences on the field, in the press box, in the booth with me so I could share that with you with everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you want to reach out to me with a question, comment, some criticism, even some praise, you could do so on my following social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels podcast, which is strictly sports. On Twitter, J Reels one, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels podcast. Or if you want to send me an email the old-fashioned way, you could do so at the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. Please send whatever you have toward me. I'll be sure to follow up with you as I love to interact with you guys to get an idea of what it is that you're thinking about, what it is that you want to share, etc. And lastly, for those who want to contribute to the podcast, the production, behind the scenes, all the stuff that I'm doing to keep this afloat. Remember, I am a one-man operation. I independently produce, host, write, and edit this podcast. So any contribution is fully and gratefully appreciated. You could do so at www.patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, Patreon is P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in nancy.com slash Podcast. Whatever you want to contribute, I would certainly and greatly appreciate it because if you don't know, now you know that I love to talk about everything that's happening on the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, have a happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Be safe, social distance, put on your mask, leave it on. Let's get through this in one piece, people. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.